from the rugged desert outside Yuma, Arizona, this is Outpost Outspoken. Outpost Outspoken is the official podcast of U.S. Army Yuma Proving Ground, which conducts natural environment testing of military equipment in Arizona, Alaska, and the tropics. Hello, I'm Mark Schauer. The three test centers under the command of Yuma Proving Ground evaluate virtually every piece of equipment in the ground combat arsenal. But unlike Yuma Test Center and Cold Regions Test Center, Tropic Regions Test Center doesn't have a test range within the United States. We spoke with TRTC Director Ernie Hugh about the test center's importance to the Army. Mr. Hugh, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Tell us why testing in a tropical environment is important for the Army. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Mark, and I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to tell you about tropic testing. Tropics is, uh, it covers uh, a tremendous amount of the world's geography, and it holds about 50% of the population of the world. So in time, a lot of the natural resources and whatnot are going to become a, an issue as we move along. So, so testing our equipment in tropics is, is essential to make sure that our soldiers, Marines, sailors are well-equipped uh, to be able to operate in this environment. Could you replicate tropical conditions in a conditioning chamber, turn the humidity up, and get the same kind of results? It's all engineering-wise, it's a good idea to test in the chamber initially because it'll, it'll identify problems that you might have offhand that you hadn't thought about. But uh, the reality is that the environment has a way of surprising engineers in many ways. And so putting it in, uh, and I know it's very difficult to replicate a particular type of environment over and over again. But there's things that occur, and, and the, the boots, Army boots, are a fine example of how you can test in a chamber, you can take it to places like Hawaii, passes in flying colors, you put it in a real environment where, it's, where they're exposed for two to three weeks, and they fail miserably. So, and that's just a one small snippet of equipment and how it can, it can be tested and yet fail once you put it in that environment. Now you test everything all the other test centers test. But the difference is, unlike them, the United States doesn't own any land in the, in the kind of environment you need in Central and South America. How do you, how do you make that work? Well, we work with the State Department, of course, with every, every country that we go into. We work with the embassies of those sites. We work with the host nation. And so our soldiers and our equipment runs through the U.S. Embassy. Every soldier has a diplomatic clearance or they have a status of forces agreement, which keeps them administratively safe in those countries. We tend to test in countries where, where it's fairly benign. In other words, you're really going to have issues with the environment, i.e. Uh, maybe snakes or things of that sort, rather than more uh, warfare type uh, threats, like, like say the FARC or things of that sort. We'll test in locations where, where the equipment can be put through its paces and yet keep our, our soldiers and personnel safe. I've heard you say that some of the locations you use in Central and South America are actually closer to the East Coast than Yuma, Arizona is, so traveling to them isn't all that difficult. Absolutely not. Uh, so if you think about it, so Miami to Panama is about a three-hour flight, three and a half. Houston is a, is a three and a half hour flight, and you're in the, you can be in one of the deepest jungles in the world. Suriname, now you can fly from Miami direct to Paramaribo, and you're talking about uh, you know, three and a half hours into an Amazon jungle and with an embassy that's very, very friendly to U.S. forces and a country that's willing to host us with their hands open. So it's really a, it's a tremendous opportunity that the Army, I think, needs to take advantage of. And, and I say this because 
we look at Southeast Asia and the Indo-Pacific, and we, we know that the Navy, it's a large body of water, the Navy has kind of taken control. Hey, we're, they're the big boys there. The Air Force also can fly out of Guam to do a lot of operations over that region. However, I said, the Chinese are building a lot of diesel submarines that'll push the Navy away. The Air Force can only fly so much they need places to land. So we do need boots on the ground in that region. And also, Pan a place like Panama is, is a transit hub, a world transit hub. So if a, if a piece of test equipment broke, as it inevitably does, you could get parts overnight from the United States. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. We, FedEx and uh, DHL, they service Panama. We have flights from multiple cities in the United States down, down directly to Panama, so every day. So yeah, you can get parts, you can get personnel, you can swap out things almost almost overnight. The, the holdup is the paperwork. The reality is, I mean, because the, that piece of equipment can get on that plane in the morning, you'll have it by early afternoon. Now, you grew up in Central and South America. You were a career naval officer. Yuma, Arizona seems like an unlikely place for a naval officer to end up. How'd you end up here, and, and why do you stay here? You know, that's, a, that's it's funny how life takes you in different directions. I retired as a naval officer in Panama. Uh, I, was, uh, I, was re I represented the U.S. Southern Command, uh, my last duty station, and uh, in charge of all the transits for Navy vessels through the Panama Canal. A tremendous job. I absolutely loved it. When one of the commanders for YPG asked me to come to, uh, to Yuma, I came up to visit. Absolutely loved the, the city, fell in love with it, and uh, brought my, my wife and two children here. And uh, it's a great place to raise kids. It's a great place to live. Uh, probably plan on retiring here, as a matter of fact. It's, it's very welcoming. I love Yuma. It's a great, great place to be. And as your, your two boys were growing up, you spent a lot of time volunteering with the Boy Scouts locally, I know, too. I did. We did, uh, we did the Boy Scouts. Uh, was the assistant scoutmaster for a number of years. And uh, both boys are now, are now in the Navy. So one is flying helicopters for, uh, off of the, uh, in the Mediterranean, and the other is about to graduate from college. From Annapolis. Bernie, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks, Mark. I truly, truly appreciate this opportunity. Look forward to the next. Many people volunteer their time and money for good causes, but doing so multiple times at significant personal expense when you're of modest means is far less common. James Shrimp, a Marine Corps veteran who's worked in YPG's aircraft armament section for nearly 30 years, is one of these individuals and all to share his passion for the timeless art of blacksmithing. Hey, Jim, thanks for being here today. When did you first get interested in being a blacksmith? Growing up, I always had a, an interest, but um, it really kicked off when in 2005, I took a, a class at AWC, Arizona Western College, and they had a blacksmithing course. And I went and took that, and that's in the welding department. And from then, I was hooked. So you built your own forge? Before the semester was over, I had a, a forge built. I came up with an anvil and was actually working at home. And what kind of things did you, do you make as a blacksmith? Mostly small items. I've, I've made a few big items, but I'm, I'm in my backyard and it, it's kind of hard to move the big stuff around. So mostly small items and then we'll go to like the Renaissance Fair. And I have a feeling that I, I kind of want it that people can afford it. So you make a small item 
you know, it's not too much money. It's something that they can afford if they really, really want it. Small pieces of jewelry or? Mostly just like little trinkets. And it's anywhere from, I made some small uh, whales to bowls to just something that they, you could put on a counter or you can put on a shelf. If you'll pardon the pun, you've used blacksmithing to forge ties with folks all over the world. Exactly. He took some, some of your blacksmithing material to, to Jordan to work with refugees a few times? Yes. It was a challenge just getting the stuff over there. And then when I went through airport security, when I got to Jordan, my, my luggage didn't show up on the, the luggage claim. So I had to go to this security office and they're, they're waiting for me. They're guy with his finger is like, come here, open it up. So the last time I did it, I actually learned what the name for blacksmith is and it's Hadad in Arabic. And so I explained to him that I was going to teach Hadad, that I am a Hadad and I, and I was gonna teach. And they understood. It translates to metal worker. Now you're not making those trips to Jordan anymore, but you're doing some stuff right here in Yuma. We haven't done it yet, but I'm planning on getting eighth grade kids from Roosevelt uh, Junior High and teaming them up with firefighters. And so basically, we'll call it Forge with a Fireman. Eventually, I would like to do other first responders, but we're I'm, I'm going to start with firemen first, so they could probably give me tips on, you know, what fire codes I'm breaking, because the uh, you're operating a a propane forge. Is blacksmithing a, a difficult hobby to get into? Is it very expensive? No, actually, I guess it depends on how, how you go by about it. You can go and buy everything and that makes it expensive, but traditionally a blacksmith, he made his own tools. And so you can, you can go to Harbor Freight and buy uh, simple tools and then you can start making your own tools. With the forge, there was some stuff that I had to order online, but I'm thinking it was like maybe about $200 to get the forge going. There was some things that I, I couldn't buy here in Yuma. And most, of the, most of the stuff is basically anytime somebody threw something away, if there was metal on it, you would, you would tear it apart, get the metal out of it, <laughs> and then hang on to the metal, and eventually you're gonna be using it. Sounds like you get a lot of satisfaction out of blacksmithing. Yes, there's several things that it, it teaches you. One, one of them is to recycle. So uh, what you're doing is you're taking something that someone would throw away because they don't have any use for it. And you look at it and you're like, I could make it into this tool or I can turn it into this. And therefore you rework it. And there was one time my son and I were out in the desert and there was some metal and I said, hey, let's go pick up this metal. He goes, it's just junk. It's, he, he was throwing a fit and it doesn't mean anything. It's just junk. I said, no, metal is metal. And uh, a lot of times I'll explain to somebody that today's car used to be a 1957 Studebaker, before that a World War II tank, before that an anvil or a wagon wheel, uh, basically, whenever they make metal, certain percent of it is actually scrap metal. So they're just reusing metal all the time. So it's when, when you put it in that perspective of something that you're using today that's made out of metal could have been, you know, could have been an old warship or could have been an old tank or anything. Hey Jim, really good visiting with you today. Thanks for coming by. Oh, thank you.
This has been Outpost Outspoken. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time from the Army's busiest test center.